weak this week? All right, good for some of you. Mine stunk. Um, I'm glad that you were uh, able to be here with us today. I really did have kind of a rough week, if I can be honest with you. My wife threw her back out, found out one of our daughters has pneumonia. Uh, just kind of rough. Oh, I think something's going on. Now I'm ready to preach. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> we're glad that you're all here. I know sometimes you have rough weeks. Sometimes you have good weeks. Ours certainly could have been worse. And so uh, not complaining about that, but letting you know that, hey, we all have tough times from time to time. And we're glad we're able to come together as a body of believers, encourage one another, carry one another's burdens, love on one another, share with one another, confront one another, confess sin to one another, do all those things. And Lord willing, those will take place in relationships today, in community groups, and also as we come together in this large group gathering. And we're going to open up God's Word in just a moment, but a couple things I want to make you aware of. One, you probably saw the Secret Church announcement that was coming. We've got limited seating for that, and we were pretty packed last time, so it would be a good idea to go to our website and sign up for that if you're thinking about Secret Church. Today's Discovering Southbridge as well. Afterwards, if you're new to Southbridge, it would be a great time for you to come. Usually we have a couple people that sign up, don't show up or whatever. We'd love for you to come if you're interested in knowing more about the church. What you do, just go to the connections table, find out if there's space for you. If there's not, we'll make sure we get you in the next time. So we'd love to have lunch with some of you today. And then also <clears throat> celebrate recovery this Thursday night. They're having a special testimony at seven o'clock at the church office. If you've ever thought about maybe coming someday to celebrate recovery, this Thursday night would be a great time to check it out, especially if you're interested in hearing about life change through Jesus Christ. It's uh, going to be a great story from what I've been told by one of the leaders, Jim. He's told me about the guy that's going to be sharing a story, and I'm sure that you would love to come and be a part of that. Thursday night, seven o'clock. And then also one little announcement, church-wide broad announcement about the Bridge Initiative. Every once in a while I announce something about that. The Bridge Initiative, um, so maybe you've been a part of a church before, they call it a fundraiser, capital campaign, whatever you want to call it. We raised some money a couple years ago for future facility, land, lease, building. We didn't know what it was going to be. We didn't have any pictures or diagrams or any of that kind of stuff. To date, last I heard, um, we've had about $1.2 million given. So that is exciting. And so I want to thank you. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's great. Um, praise the Lord. On behalf of the leaders of our church, the elders, uh, different folks, the staff, myself, I just want to say thank you for your continued generosity. We've got people that are giving above and beyond the commitment that they made, so that's very encouraging. We get people, we had last month, uh, somebody give a gift that wasn't even pledged, and so it's exciting to hear that. Some of you are new to the church, and you wonder what do you need to do if you just want to give money, designate it for the Bridge Initiative, then that goes towards a future facility. And right now, we're focused in on a piece of land. I can't tell you what the piece of land is because there are people that would want to kill me. <laughs> And I told the first service, there are things I would give my life for. This is not one of them. <laughs> so uh, I, I can't tell you exactly where the land is at. And I know that people are guessing, where's it here? Is it? It's in the Briar Creek area. Uh, the reason why I can't tell you is it could put our church in a compromised situation for negotiation and things that are taking place. But what I would like to ask you right now is if you would pray for, specifically there's a bunch of details we're going through, and due diligence. And there's people that are experts in this. So if you ask me questions, I don't know anything about streams. Uh, I don't know the DOT very well. I don't know lots of that stuff. But I know all that's the stuff that's being worked on. And so if you would be praying about that stuff, and when the time is right, if this is the piece of property God has for us, which maybe it's not, um, if, when the time is right, we'll all go out there and pray on it together if that's where God leads us. And so I just wanted to give you a little update on what was happening with some of that stuff. And uh, we're going to jump back into the book of Galatians. So you pray with me? Father, I come before you and uh, grateful that you've given us your word, that you show us stuff about yourself. You reveal your attributes, you reveal your desires, you reveal your commandments, so many of your characteristics. And God, will you take those things and reveal yourself to us in a relational way today? Will you cause us to trust you for those who have never trusted you? Will you cause greater trust in our relationship with you for those of us who have been walking with you for a while? God, I pray for those that are stagnant in their relationship with you, that you would smack them in the face. You'd kick them around, whatever you need to do to spark in their heart a love for you. And Father, I pray for those of us who are struggling in this battle of the flesh and the spirit and all that, God, that you would give us great victory today through your word, through your spirit. 
God, will you please bring, bring to life in our hearts your spirit and just help us to cry out to you and to know you better as a result of this time in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, almost every week that I preach, I ask you, if you're a guest, to fill out your connection card. And if you're a guest today, I want you to know that we're very grateful that you came. Um, we've made a lot of plans for you to be here with parking spots and first-time guest kiosk and gifts and all those things. If you fill out your connection card today, we'll make a donation to a ministry because you filled it out. We'll also give you another gift. If you received one on the way in, you get two gifts, and otherwise you just get two gifts at the end. But if you fill out the card and uh, take it to the first-time guest kiosk, you'll get that. But on the connection card, if you look at it, we ask you basically this question, who are you? And you can answer stuff too, like how did you hear about us and things like that. But if I asked all of you today, not just the people that were new or you've never filled out a connection card before, to fill out your connection card, how would you answer that question? Who are you? You'd probably say your name. Some of you will never fill out a card. I just, it's like a personality trait. I've never seen it show up on a test, but there are some people that will just not fill out a card. And so say you don't fill a card out today, but I bump into you out in the lobby and I ask you the question, so who are you? What would you say? Some of you may say, hello, my name is, and fill in the blank with your name, or I do something, maybe a job title, or, or maybe you tell us something about where you live, a geography, a sports team that you root for, something you do, something you identify with, something cultural, you've come from somewhere, you're in town because of this, and there's different things that we may say with who we are. It's a very simple question, really. Who are you? But the answer's not simple, is it? It's pretty complex, especially when you consider all the different roles that we play in society, all the different places, the roles that you play in different areas of society, and in fact, all the titles that you may possibly have, teacher, lawyer, doctor, pastor, whatever it is, nurse, mom, dad, and brother, sister, cousin, relative, whatever it is that you are, there are all these different things, and some of you are many of those things. It can be incredibly confusing. And then you look at our culture and the importance they place on identity. Comedians have become famous for talking about it. You know Jeff Foxworthy does the, you might be a redneck if jokes. <laughs> You might be a redneck if you think fast food's running over a possum at 65 miles per hour. I don't know if you've heard that one or not, and some of you are like, hey, I had a possum literature. Anyway, uh, some of you uh, maybe have heard, you know, you might be a redneck if you think a quarter horse is a ride outside of Walmart. <laughs> you might be a redneck. And so he said all these jokes, they're identity jokes. He's become famous for these things. Or you look at marketers and advertisers, and, and they basically advertise identity. If you do this, then you'll be this. If you have this, then you'll be known as successful, whatever it is that you, they think you're going to fill in the blank. And I believe that with all the messages about identity out there, we're incredibly confused about who we really are. That's why you see people that are going to find themselves. Hey, and you just read it in the news. I read a news article this week from a paper in Toronto where there was a couple that had a little baby, and they're not going to tell the baby the gender that it is. Boy, girl, I, I don't know the gender. They named the baby Storm. So I guess Storm is like a gender-neutral name. And, and then they said the only people that actually know the gender of the baby, obviously the doctor, mom and dad know, and the two brothers know, and there's one family friend that knows. So grandma and grandpa don't know, cousins don't know, neighbors don't know, other kids don't know. And at the time, the article that I read, the baby was four months old at the time. Nobody knew whether Storm was a boy or a girl. And the parents' thought is that then Storm will have the freedom to choose its gender, <laughs> God already chose. But anyway, the, the, the thing they're going to figure it out eventually. But the parents think what they're doing is giving greater freedom to the child. So the societal pressures aren't there to force them into an identity. But child experts and psychologists commented on this on multiple articles online, if you look this up, and it's on ABC um, News and The Today Show and various different things. One expert said, that it's so critical and so important for some personal identity at this stage of life, what they're doing to this child is actually introducing confusion. And he says that we will probably have an all-new type of identity crisis. 
as a result of parents trying this type of thing. They're not the first parents that have done this. Uh, in fact, there were two other cases that I read about linked to this story. It's identity crisis. It's confusion. And many of us are confused. Confused about who we are. Maybe you realize your gender. Maybe you don't. Maybe you struggle with that. But who are you really? Who are, are you what you do? Are you your job? Are you your title? Are you all these roles that you play? Do you ever hear this statement? I really like being around these people because when I'm with these people, then I can be myself. Then who are you all the other times? You think about all the roles you play, and maybe that's what you mean by that. I think about myself today. I'll be pastor to some, teacher to some, friend to some, foe to others based on the things that I'll say. Some of you will project things on me. I don't even know what they'll be, but I'll be that to you. I'll be an acquaintance. I'll be close. I'll be a father to some. I'll be a husband to one, and I'll be a brother to one. I'll be a son to my mom, and there'll be all these different things that I will be today. So who am I? And the same is true for many of you. You might be business owner. You might be employee. You might be boss. You might be mom. You might be sister. You might be daughter. You might be lawyer. You might be teacher. You might be nurse. You might be many things. So who are you? Simple question, but very confusing, isn't it? My hope and prayer for you as we go through this message today is by the end of the message, you'll have greater clarity to that question. Who are you? If you have your Bibles, we're in Galatians chapter 4. It's our fourth week in this series. We've been doing a chapter each time, not covering every verse, but getting the big idea of what's happening. And we're in Galatians chapter 4 today, and we've looked at these first three chapters in this book that we've called Galatians. It's written by a guy named Paul. Paul's a very interesting man because he lived his life really in two parts. The first part of his life was lived to try and please God, to earn God's favor, to earn God's blessing by obeying the law. And he was known really as a Pharisee. He was known as a Jew. He was known as a Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was circumcised on the right day. He was a Pharisee. He had all the right things going for him. And then God grabbed a hold of his life and showed him it wasn't about all that he knew and all the roles that he played. It was about who he knew. And he called him into a relationship and out of the religion that he had into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then he became one of the greatest church planners in all of human history. And he plants multiple churches. Well, multiple of the books that are written in the Bible are actually letters, letters written to churches. And this, that's what Galatians is. It's a letter that's written to a group of churches in a region of the world called Galatia, a province of Rome at the time. And he's writing to these people that he loves because his heart's breaking for them. He had gone and he had shared a message with them. It was a simple message. It was that God offers you a gift by grace. You don't deserve it, but it's offered to you freely by grace alone. The way you receive it is through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But they've gotten confused They've added some things to that. They've been, as we saw last week, bewitched by something else that's fascinated them. And they've gotten so confused that now they don't even know who they are. And Paul's just told them in the context for chapter 4 and chapter 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 27, 28, and unpacks that some. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the day, until the time set by his father. Verse 3, so also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. 
we've got this beautiful passage of scripture where the Apostle Paul's writing them about their identity, and he really breaks it down into two categories. One, slaves. The other, sons. And so the big question is, are we a slave or are we a son? Are we positionally and practically a slave? Are we positionally and practically a son? There are many questions that flow out of this, and I don't really have any points for you today. I just have questions. My first question is simple. It's this. Are you a slave? Are you a slave? What are you talking about, man? This is America, home of the free, land of the brave. It's 2012. What are you even thinking about asking me if I'm a slave? Some of you may be offended by that question. And rightfully so, if by slave I meant a lower class, if by slave I meant forced labor, if by slave it had something to do with ethnicity, if by slave I meant anything other than someone whose master is not their maker. See, that's all I mean by slave today. Who's your master? If your master is someone other than your creator, the God who created you, made you, has a plan for you, then you are a slave. Are you a slave? The Bible tells us we can't have more than one master. Uh, Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 that no one can serve two masters. You have one, no one can have two. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, he'll be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God, and then the example he uses here, and money. And you could change and money to anything else. But money's your master when money consumes your thoughts, when money controls your decisions, when money dictates where you go and how you do what you do, it's controlling you. So what's central in your life? What consumes your thoughts? What dictates your decisions? It can be many things. It can be money. It can be sex. It could be other people. It could be a relationship. It could be many things other than your maker. It could be fear. It could be guilt. It could be anxiety. It could be depression. It can be whatever you fill in the blank with. It could be you. Who makes your decisions? Who guides you? How are your decisions made? Why do you make them? Where are your thoughts consumed? What is central in your life? That is your master. If your master is anything other than your maker, you're a slave. Let me tell you the good news with that. To be enslaved has no discrimination to it. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. Ethnicity doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter gender. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're a Tar Heel or if you're a Wolfpack. It doesn't matter if you're a lawyer. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher. It doesn't matter if you're a mom. It doesn't matter if you're dead. There are slaves that are all of these things. There are slaves who are lawyers. There are slaves who are doctors. There are slaves who are realtors. There are slaves who are without work. There are slaves who stay at home. There are slaves who are parents. There are slaves who are single. There are slaves who are or students. There are slaves with every major, every sports affiliation, every part of the world, and every country. There are slaves. The question I want you to ask is, are you a slave? And what Paul does at the beginning of this passage, starting in verse 1, is he describes what it's like to be a slave. And he says this in verse 1. He says, what I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. <laughs> I feel like you just contradicted yourself, Paul. What do you mean? Of course a child and a slave are different. You just said the child owns the whole estate. What Paul's talking about here is not a positional difference. He's talking about practically. Practically, the child's just like the slave. Until he comes of age... Now, there's some problems for us in understanding this passage of Scripture, and I have to teach you some more background than I normally have to do through this passage of Scripture, but I just want to get an idea of kind of where we're at. How many of you that are male, how many of you knew when you went from being a boy to a man? How many of you knew that moment? Oh, see, I see a couple hands. 
All right, there's like three, okay? Uh, there's kind of a commentary on, I don't know if what you, I don't know, the guys that raised their hand, I don't know if you had like hair on your chest or what it was that happened at that moment, but we don't really have a ceremony for that because we live in a culture we don't highly value ceremony. I mean, we have certain things like weddings and stuff, but we don't do a lot of ceremonies. And now, in the ancient world, there were ceremonies, regardless of really of what culture background you came from, there were ceremonies. One of the popular ones was when a boy went from being a boy to a man, and it was a very clear day, and it was one day they were a boy, the next day they were a man. In Jewish culture, they would have, after the 12th birthday of a young man, a uh, father would take his son, and some of you have been to bar mitzvah before, or maybe have a, a Jewish heritage. In the ancient world, after the 12th birthday, the first Sabbath that would happen is that a father would take his son to the synagogue, and what they would do is the father would pray a prayer, and I'm not joking around, you can look this up. It basically goes like this, thank you God that I'm no longer responsible for this boy. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Kind of my words, but it's essentially what it is. And then the, the boy would then pray a prayer This is God, you know, my God, God of my fathers. I now recognize that I'm responsible for my decisions. I now recognize that the commandments that you have, they're on me. And the decisions I make, I'm responsible for them. And there was clarity that after that time, after that ceremony, the boy became a man. In Greek culture, which there are many Greeks that probably read this passage in Galatia, in Greek culture what would happen at the age of 18... You'd take a young man, and they'd have a special ceremony, and then they'd cut all of his hair off, <laughs> and a lot of times he had long hair, and they would offer it as a sacrifice. I guess that was the symbol of youth being gone. They'd offer it as a sacrifice to a false god, and then they'd bring him before uh, the public square, and he'd be known as publicly dedicated to the next two years of his life, spending in service to the city or to his clan, depending on where he lived at, as a, in the military. And when those two years were done, boy became a man. In the Roman culture that Paul's probably referring to here in this passage of Scripture, the exact time that a boy became a man was determined by the father. He set the time. It's probably somewhere between 14 and 17 years old, but dad got to decide. It could be a, another time frame as well. But most were between 14 and 17 years old. And what they would do is a toga party. <laughs> Some of you were in a fraternity. Toga! A little different. But what they would do is they would bring the young man into the party, and he'd be wearing a toga that was purple trim with white everywhere else, was child's clothes. At the end of the ceremony, what they would do is they would take it off and they would put on him an all-white toga. Those were adult clothes. And we talk about in Scripture being clothed with Christ. There's a transformation that takes place. And what would happen then is they would take him before the public square and introduce him to public life. There was also a ceremony that was done in the Roman culture where they would take, if you were a young man, when you became a man, you would take all your toys and you dedicate them to a god. And if you're a girl, you take your dolls. Can you imagine in our culture with our prolonged adolescence, like 40-year-old men bringing their Xboxes to church? <laughs> I'm done. I quit. I'm a man. It's confusion in our culture. See, they didn't have that confusion. There was, a, there was a moment where you went from being a boy to being a man. And he's saying here, but as long as you're still a boy, as long as you're still a child, even though positionally you have a father, you're in the family, you own the whole estate, you're a slave. And verse 2 says, because you've got trustees and guardians. It's really ironic when you understand all the background here. The guardians and the trustees in most wealthy families were actually slaves. So your master was actually a slave. <laughs> so you're no different than a, practically speaking. Now, positionally, we're not talking about that. But practically speaking, what Paul was saying here, and the Galatians would understand this, practically speaking, you're no different than a slave because you have a master. And that guardian or that trustee, the trustee would handle all the financial decisions. If you owned the whole estate, especially in a wealthy family, the guardian would walk, you know, make sure that you didn't get hurt, make sure you didn't make bad decisions, essentially made decisions for you. 
And while we don't have customs for this, we understand this. We still understand as parents, we still understand as the government, that when kids are a certain age, decisions have to be made for them. That's why we don't give driver's license to kids that are five, right? You might think you're driving behind a five-year-old sometimes, but you're not. We wait until a certain age, and that's the idea here behind this. If someone makes decisions for you, they're your master, practically speaking. So who's your master? We can have many. Who's yours? It can be God, your maker, who consumes you and who he is, and therefore you think about him and you are guided in your decisions. You trust not in your own understanding, which you trust in him, that he can direct all of your steps and every decision. It's a trust relationship, though, where he speaks to you through his word, by his spirit, or you can have other masters, and we have many. There are almost unlimited options for us. Who's yours? Is it guilt? Guilt's a common master, isn't it? How many people are making decisions to actually compensate from something in the past? How many just have this guilty conscience like they're going to do something wrong? Guilt is their master. It drives their decisions. It's central. It actually dictates what you do. Fear. Fear's a popular one. I've had many grown men tell me. Fear. Fear of failure. And what, we don't know how to define success, but we're afraid that we're not going to get it. And so fear drives what we do. Or fear of loss, maybe a fear of loss of a loved one, as if you have control of that. Fear of loss of control, there's a myth for you. Fear of the worst thing possibly happening. All kinds of fear, and fear can drive our decisions. You're driven by fear, then fear's your master. And that means you're a slave. What about money? We know that can be the thing. If it's consuming all of your thoughts, if that's actually what drives you, then that is your master. You can't have two, so who's your master? It can be many things. Sex, we'd like to think in church, well, there's no one here, but there's lots of people that have a problem with that. And with the statistics, you know the statistics on internet porn? They are so overwhelming. And let me tell you, I've had men tell me before, I didn't think that porn was a problem for me because I wasn't paying for it. <laughs> if you're looking at it, it's a problem. And you might think you're in control, it will control you. It is addictive, it will control you. Sex can drive our lives. It can be a master. It can be other people. Think about relationships. A relationship, is there a relationship in your life that's actually more important to you than God? If you lost that relationship, you don't know what you'd do. Is there a relationship that actually dictates the decisions that you make? Then guess what? That person is your master, and they might not even try to be. What about people in general, people's opinions? You know how many of us are driven by people's opinions and we'll say whatever we need to say, do whatever we need to do, become whoever we need to become so that other people will give us affirmation and we think if we get enough of that, then we'll feel secure. It's a lie. Think if we have enough money, we'll be secure. We think if we have enough experiences, the success, the achievement, all those things can be masters. What is your master? If it's anything other than your maker or anyone other than your maker, then guess what? You're a slave. For the Galatians, Paul tells them who their master is. It's principles, he says. But what does he mean? Verse 3. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Commentators, scholars, different theologians, they debate about this passage. There are three main views that people take on this. Some people think that what Paul's talking about when he says the basic principles of the world, that he's talking about the ABCs of the law, the basic principles of the Jewish law in the Old Testament. 
I think if that's what Paul meant, that he would have said the basic principles of the law. And he says that multiple times in other places. Here he says the world. So what's he talking about? That word principles can be translated as elements. Some people think that what Paul's referring to here is the old way of life that many of these Greek people lived in. And that would be worshiping the gods of the elements, earth, wind, fire, Poseidon, different mythological gods that they would worship. And he's saying you're living your old way of life. I believe here that he's actually talking about spiritual powers. That's the way the New Living Translation translates this verse. The New Living Translation says, and that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world, these basic spiritual principles that many people believe, and they're deceptive, and they're slight, and there's this spiritual battle that's taking place over our souls, and we talked about it a little bit at the end of the message last week, and I referred to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, where I was telling you how foolish it would be to try and fight a spiritual battle with fleshly weapons, but we have spiritual weapons that are given to us through the Scripture and through the Spirit, and Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that there's a world taking place in this world that we don't see, but we see the effects of it. And I talked about spiritual battle last week, and guess what? I got in a conversation after second service with a couple about spiritual battle. <laughs> Who would imagine that that would take place, right? But we, neither one of us going into the conversation realized that's what we were actually going to be talking about. And what we started off talking about was a relative that they had come into town, had come to a service at Southbridge, and praise God. He's amazing. God works in our church. I'm so thankful we have a church where God's alive and active, not because we have programs, just as the Spirit is moving and active in our church. The guy trusted Christ at the end of the service. It's awesome. So I love hearing the update on that. And periodically I just ask, you know, how's so-and-so doing? And uh, after he left here, Went back to the town that he's living in before, things went south. Now, I know that in church, we're supposed to tell stories that basically go, here's the format for testimony. Life was bad, I made bad decisions, things weren't going well, I trusted Jesus, and everything's been good since. <laughs> then there's the rest of us that sit there and listen to the story, like myself, you, many of you, I'm sure, that you trust Jesus, but there's still tough stuff. Well, things got tough for this person. And I ended up sharing with this couple as we were talking about something that my mentor, the guy who led me to Jesus, ended up sharing with me right after I trusted Christ. He pulled me aside one day and just said, Scott, you're in the family. And there's nothing that Satan can do. And I didn't understand like all this spiritual talk, like Satan, what are you talking about? I didn't understand all that. He said, nothing Satan can do to take you out of God's family. However, what he wants to do is make you ineffective for God's family. He wants to cut your legs out from underneath you. And when he said, cut your legs off from underneath you, at the time I was a senior year of high school, I was running on the track team, and I remember the, the image that came in my mind was running on a track in a race and jumping over a hurdle and getting your legs cut out from underneath you. You wouldn't finish the race. Still be on the team, but you wouldn't score any points for the team. In fact, it would be detrimental to you, individually and as a team. That's Satan's desire for your life. Once you come into the family, you're in the family, you're on the team, but he doesn't want you to finish the race well. He doesn't want you doing anything that's effective for the kingdom, and there's a battle over you for that, and oftentimes the battle happens not because there's some little red dude in a suit, okay? Sometimes we make Satan to be just like stupid. He's not going to be so stupid as to come in a little red suit with a pitchfork, <laughs> it's Halloween, you know, whatever. He's not a dude that sits on your shoulder. In fact, in even an adult version, he's not something that you saw in like a horror movie, <laughs> which was a bad decision in the first place. But anyway, uh, the, he's not that either. Do you know what the Bible says about Satan? 
It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that he masquerades as an angel of light. He pretends to be. He wears a mask. <laughs> and he doubt what he's trying to make us do. He wears a mask as if he were an angel of light, as if he were presenting truth. What better place to attack than in the church? What better place to attack than through religion? He does it through lies. You know what happened with the person we were talking about that trusted Christ? They started to believe things like this. I'm not good enough. Started to believe things like, you didn't really make that commitment, right? You don't really believe that stuff. Have you ever heard some of these lies? You look in the mirror at yourself. You ever hear some of the lies that are there? If they really knew, or maybe in times of temptation, no one will know. You're not hurting anyone. There's enough truth to disguise the reality of what's going to take place. See, that's how the battle is fought. It's fought over your soul and over your heart, and you don't see it, but there's enough truth that it seems true. And you get things like, if you just did more, false Christianity, then you'd really have that. If you just attended more. God is actually, he's been created for you, not you for him. Slight differences that make all the difference. Those false Christianities we talked about last week, all lies. Well, you see it in other places. I had a, a, I was working, we did a garage sale yesterday at my house, and I had a woman come, and I thought she was trying to share the gospel with me, <laughs> which, anyway, she saw the need to share the gospel with me, made me think about myself a little bit, but uh, <laughs> too high a prices, I guess. I, I don't know what took place. But she came, and she was, we talked about some items at the garage sale and whatnot, and then she had this sheet of paper that I saw there was Bible verses on it and stuff. And I thought, well, I could tell her I'm a pastor. Then she might feel silly. I'm not going to do that. And so I just kind of, she's like, just take this and look at the verses and go through a Bible yourself. And it's good news. I'm like, thank you, ma'am. You know, they want to patronize her or whatever. And she leaves. I start to read it. And wasn't Christian at all. There were some Bible verses in there, but it had questions on there like, what about the afterlife? And what about suffering? And, and I thought, I'd be interested to hear what some of the answers are in here. And so I, I look at it. And the question on the afterlife is, there is none. Bible verses, like way taken out of context, half of verses that are in there, not even a whole verse on there, that are popped in there out of obscure passages in the Old Testament that basically say there's no afterlife. There's no hope then, right? No, no, no. We'll give you some verses here that tell you how to live a better life. That's what it did. And I felt so mad at myself that I didn't take the time to have this conversation with this woman. She's so lost and deceived. But there's Bible verses. It's the, it's the truth, right? An angel of light comes deceiving comes to deceive us and lead us away from the very thing that God has for us and does it in so many different ways and he knows exactly what's going on in your life and how to do it for you. And he wants to put you in bondage, in slavery. We talk about slavery at our church sometimes with human trafficking and you may wonder why we talk about this so often. We're actually involved literally in the battle of human trafficking through a strategic ministry partner we have called Women at Risk International. You can go to their website and check them out. But we hear a lot of times about what's happening in the world of human trafficking. And some of you, you may, maybe even saw the news this week or there was a video that was real viral on uh, YouTube. Uh, Coney, I think was the dude's name. It's essentially about human trafficking. It's real. There are more slaves in the world today than there's ever been before. And one of the ways that people get, the human traffickers get children into slavery is they actually go to the front door of the home of the person who has the child, knock on the door, and then give a little bit of truth, but enough deception 
And they'll say things like, and this usually happens in third world countries, like, we'll take your child, we'll give them a good job, they'll make lots of money, we'll pay you money right now for your child, and then we're going to take them to somewhere like the United States, you know? And people believe in some places of the world that they're like pots of gold in the United States, like just laying in the street, just walk by and grab some, and you have a bunch of money. And so they assume that's how the life, life is here, and they're struggling to put food on the table. People are dying because they don't have clean drinking water, and so they sell their child thinking there's going to be money sent back, there's never money sent back. And the kids go make a lot of money for someone else that owns them, and labor slavery and then sex slavery and as soldiers and so there's like enough truth there but now they've got them they're in bondage and that's what happens with us spiritually speaking it's a picture of our spiritual lives and so we think we believe just like eve we believe that if i just buy the lie if i just go for this it's better than the god's plan for me and if i just had and enough people praise me or if i just had enough money but i'm so i'm going to control things so that i never have this bad circumstance and we believe all these lies that aren't trusting God. So someone other than our maker is our master. And we're in bondage. How do you battle that? Well, Jesus says an interesting statement to some people that weren't in chains, that weren't actually under a slave master. In John chapter 8, he says to some religious people, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Verse 32, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from What? And you go on and you read in John chapter 8 a little bit further, and what he ends up saying is this. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And then he goes on. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. And when the son sets you free, you are free. So does the son set you free? Are you a slave or are you a son? Now what do you mean by son? That's not kind of real gender specific. You used a gender statement at the beginning, and now you're going to talk about just sons? What about daughters? Well, it's interesting. I was reading one commentary. The reason why Paul actually uses the word son here is not because he's being chauvinistic or anything like that, but in this culture, the son's the only one that receives the inheritance. And so we're speaking both to male and female, and in fact, in the broader context, in verse 28, he said there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, and he's talking spiritually. He's not saying that there's no difference. He's not saying there aren't distinctions. He's not saying there aren't different roles. He's not saying any of those things. He clarifies that in other places in Scripture, but here he's saying before God, positionally, there's no difference, and so he's asking here, are you a son? And let's talk about what a son is like. The first three verses, he talked about a slave. If you're a son, he says this in verse 4, but... When the time had fully come, see, the father gets to decide. But when the time had fully come, God, not but when you cleaned up your act, not but when you decided to attend a thing, not but when there was this one thing you decided to change your thoughts on slightly different, but nothing you did but God. But God did the work. Read all seven verses. There's no commandments in here. It's all about God. But God sent his son, so he was divine, this son. Yeah. Born of a woman, but he was also human, and so he knows temptation. He's able to sympathize with us. He knows what it's like to be in this flesh. Fully divine, fully human, born under law to redeem those under law. So what is he doing? He's redeeming. Okay, got it. Redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons, or as the English standard, New American standards say, that you might be adopted into God's family. So he's redeeming us, and he's adopting us because you are sons once you've been adopted. God sent the spirit of his sons, so this is what we receive, into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. So you've got rights to all of the blessings that are God's. You're part of his family. You are part of a royal priesthood and a holy nation. John chapter 1 says you're given the right to be called child of God if you are a son. So are you a son? Are you a son? How do you know if you're a son? Well, 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, it says, For all of you are sons. And wouldn't it be great if he stopped right there? He says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, All of you are sons, but it's not because you're created. It's not because you're part of the human race. That all of you are sons through faith in Jesus Christ. So the question is, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Have you crossed that line of faith? That is a significant decision for anyone's life. And my fear is that we have many people in our church that have run right up to the line, but they haven't crossed it. They'll come up, and it's like you believe all the right stuff. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You believe that God loves you. You believe that God has a plan for you. You want to apply Bible verses to your life, but you've got belief. You don't have trust. You haven't crossed the line of faith. And cross the line of faith today. He offers you an opportunity to be in his family through what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you when he died to redeem you, to adopt you, to bring you into the family. But you've got to trust. You've got to cross that line of faith. It's through grace alone that gifts being offered. By faith, trust alone, you cross the line. There are others, and I have some of you in mind, that you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, you believe the right stuff, and you try to do things, and you just hope that God's going to figure out at the end, and it's going to, it's going to work out in your favor, because you, you, do, you serve in ministry, you're involved in community group, you, you feed people, you take care of people, you love people, you, you go to different places and do different things, and it's all good stuff. But if you cross the line of faith, if you haven't crossed the line of faith, you're not a son. And there are other people, there's this line of faith, and you, just, you run from it. Because it reminds you of something, some bad church experience or something from your parents or you just think that you're too bad. Let me say God's calling you back to the line of faith. Will you cross that line of faith? Will you trust? Because when you trust, you become his son. Do you know what that means? That means he redeems you, verse 5. Do you know what it means to be redeemed? It means to be bought back. He's purchased you into his family and you become, the second part of verse 5, adopted, his child. What does that mean to be bought back, redeemed, purchased? Well, think about it like this. Imagine, those of you who aren't parents, imagine that you have children. Imagine you have young children. For some of you who are grown parents, those of you who have young children, this will be easy. Imagine you're out in the front yard with your kids, and you turn around for a minute, and a human trafficker drives up. And they're driving whatever human traffic, big black van, right? They drive a big black van, they drive up. And they say something to your child. And they say, do your parents give you candy all the time? No. Get in the van, we'll give you candy all the time. And the kid believes it. And they get in the van, and they take off, and you turn around, and the, you see this van take off. Now what do you do? They've got your kid, but what do you do? Whatever it takes, right? Like you call the police, you call the FBI, you probably go looking yourself. You probably, I think about myself, put myself in this situation this week, I'd probably go to places that I would never go to on my own. I'd do whatever it takes. Let's say you find out where the human traffickers are at and they have your child. And you've been seeking to save that which is lost. You've been going after your child. And they say, you can have your child back, but there's a price. What will you pay? whatever it takes, right? You'd empty the bank accounts to get your kid back. You'd sell the house. You'd sell your car. You'd give every piece of clothing you have. You'd give whatever you could, right? What if the price was you had to give the life of another child? See, that's what God did for you. 
You've been redeemed, purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ. He sent his son, born of a woman, that you might be redeemed, bought back, purchased. You believed the lie just like Eve believed the lie and every person since. And maybe it wasn't candy. Maybe it was something else. But we've all bought the lie. And then we're in bondage and he's bought us out of that slavery. And now we get to be adopted, his child. And he's our father. And here's the deal. He's a perfect father. What does that mean to you? Because many of you have had fathers. None of you have had a perfect father. Some of you have had some really jacked up dads. And some of you shared it in some of your grace stories. I saw some people reading the grace stories between services. Some of you had dads that were abusive, verbally abusive, emotionally abusive, sexually abusive, physically abusive, all kinds of different ways. So when I say to you, you have a perfect father, what does that concept even mean to you? Or some of you, you didn't have abusive dads. Maybe you had absent dads. Maybe you don't know who your dad is. Or maybe you know who he is. He's just never around for you. Or he wasn't there. Or he didn't really get to the heart of what you wanted to talk about when you wanted to talk about stuff. And he had trite answers or quick answers. Or maybe he didn't even have answers. Or maybe he was there, but he wasn't aware. See, none of us had perfect fathers. So to talk about a perfect father, what are we even talking about? Well, let me tell you about our perfect father. Our perfect father, he cares. In fact, the scriptures say repeatedly that he is compassionate. Our father is compassionate. If you're a son, your father is compassionate. Your father, he cares about everything that's going on in your life, the good and the bad. And he actually has a plan for you in the good and in the bad. And it's all for your good and for his glory. Your father will guide you through life. Your father will provide for you. Your father, according to this passage, has perfect timing. According to other passages, he only gives good gifts. And then every good gift you have actually came from your father. Your father, he's never too busy for you. Which is interesting when you consider he controls all of creation. But your father is never too busy for you. And your father doesn't just leave you alone to try and figure life out. Your father has answers. He has words of truth. He has words that the scripture says are good medicine, medicine to our bones. We've got truth, and he gives wisdom. He promises if we ask for it that your father will give you wisdom for every circumstance and every situation. You have a father that will hold you in his arms. You have a father that no matter what you do and how far you run, that when you come back, like the prodigal father in Luke chapter 15, he will wrap his arms around you and hold you. You have a father that will discipline you, but he disciplines you because he loves you. You have a father who will never let you go. And you have a father that is always there for you. And you have a father that will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You don't have to guess with what you're getting every morning when you wake up. You have a father that's consistent. You have a father that above all things, he loves you. And he paid for you. Because he loves you so much, he gave his most precious son. So that you could be his. Son or daughter. Do you know what else that means? You're his perfect child. Some of you, you know the pressure of trying to live up to standards you could never live up to. And usually people respond to that in one of two ways. Either you try really hard, even though you know you're never really going to make it, or you run from that and you rebel against it. I don't know where you're at on the spectrum, but let me tell you something. When God looks at you, he sees perfection. Because when he looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus Christ, and the righteousness of his son, Jesus. So he died on the cross for you. He didn't just pay for you. He was your substitute. And so what God sees when he looks at you is the perfection of Jesus Christ. He sees you as his perfect son, his perfect daughter. 
but what about the stuff that I've done? Well, it's not that he's not aware of that. If he wasn't aware of it, how could he guide you in it? How could he help you with those struggles? How could he provide you with the resources you need in that? How would he know when to discipline you? See, he's aware of all of it, but what he chooses to do with it is to remove it as far as the east is from the west, to cleanse you of it, and to never bring it up again. That's how he sees you. You're a perfect child. I don't know what you've done or where you've been. He does, and he loves you. He's a perfect father. You're his perfect child. And how do you know if this is true of you or not? The way that you know that it's true is because of the Spirit. I love a quote I read by John Stott. I love it when smart people make difficult concepts sound really simple. And he says, God sent his son so that you could have the position of sonship. He sent his spirit so you could have the experience of sonship. And see, the people that Paul's writing to here, most of them are positionally sons and living practically as slaves. And so I ask you, are you a son? Let me ask, I'm asking a practical question, but are you living like a son? How do I know? Well, he tells us he sends the Spirit. It's the Spirit of his Son, and the Spirit lives in us, and it's that Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. What does he mean when he says Abba? Abba is an interesting word because it's an Aramaic word. The Bible was originally written in Greek. So the fact that they're, and we have it in English, but the fact that it's in Aramaic, and they didn't translate it out of Aramaic into Greek, or out of Aramaic into English, or in any other translation, they leave it Aramaic in several passages of Scripture. This one, Romans chapter 8, and Jesus' lips himself in, in Mark chapter 14 when he's in the garden and he cries out, Abba, to the Father. In fact, it was revolutionary that Jesus even called God his Father. And he told his disciples to do the same thing. People talked about God as Father of a nation, but as an individual, this word Abba is an incredibly intimate word. It's a word that conveys the idea of trust and connection with. So are you son? Well, your spirit then cries out, Abba. It's a relational, it's a family term. It's like in our family, my daughters, I got four daughters, and they call me dad, obviously. So they, some of them are old enough they actually know my name, and uh, others that dada is like the, the word. But I've got one daughter, she's old enough that she knows my name. She calls me dad most of the time. Dad, like when she's asking a question, dad, why is the sky blue? God made it that way, you know, whatever the question is at the moment, or, you know, here, I joke with her, and sometimes she'll go, dad, like she's starting to get it now in my humor, so it loses like a level of humor for me in the situation, but she's, she, dad, like I understand you're messing with me, and she wants something, she calls me daddy, you know, daddy, can I have, and fill in the blank with the thing that she wants, but every once in a while, there's a moment where we're, we're just connected, and she wants to give me a piece of her heart. And even though she's old enough to not talk like a baby, she'll come up, she'll grab a hold of my leg, and she'll say, Dada. And it's like, there's this connection there. That's what the term Abba is like. It's the term of an infant, but used by adults. Jesus himself uses it in an incredibly intense moment in the garden when he cries out, Abba, Father, I know you can do all things. Take this cup. Take it. But not what I will, but you will. Abba. It's not just you using a term, though. It's not just saying daddy to God. It's not calling, you know, God dada or papa or whatever phrase you might want to put in there for an English translation of it. It's not even you. Look at the passage. It says that your spirit cries out. The spirit of his son is given to you, and that spirit cries out. It's not a phrase that you can learn to do in church. It's what your spirit cries out to God, that there's a connection there. There's an intimacy there when you're a son and some of us, that intimacy is lacking because we're not a son. Maybe we're religious, maybe we believe the right stuff, maybe we do the right stuff, but you're not a son or a daughter. For some of us, 
We're positionally sons, but there's stuff hindering us. We've got to repent. So who are you? If I asked you right now, because everyone today had a worship program in your seat, fill out your connection card, and I want you to tell me who you are, but not just your name. Tell me the whole story. Who are you? Are you a slave or are you a son? Lord willing, you have greater clarity now than you did when I asked that question the first time. But if you're a slave, you've got to ask yourself, this is an important question for all of us, who's your master? If you're not a slave, then what does it mean for you to be a son or a daughter of the living God, to have been redeemed, to have been adopted. So who are you? Let's pray. Father God, my heart cries out to you on behalf of those that are here today. Father, I pray specifically for those who have yet to cross that line of faith and place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Will you, by the power of your spirit, through the conviction of your spirit, the calling of your spirit, will you tap on their shoulder right now as they sit in their seat? Will you invite them into your family? Will you speak to them and say, I want you to be my child? Will you make them realize that if they're not? And if God's asking you to cross that line of faith today, he's asking you to step into his family, he's tapping you on the shoulder right now, then I will just challenge you, as you sit there in your seat, you can place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you believe in your heart, those truths that, that God did raise Jesus from the dead, that he died on the cross for your sins, and you're willing to confess with your mouth. You're willing to take a step of faith and actually trust that truth for your eternal destiny and for your daily life. And say, God, I admit my sin before you, that I'm separated from you, but I need your son Jesus Christ to be my Savior. And today I want to receive Jesus to be my Savior. And I want to be your child. I want to step into your family. I want to cross that line of faith. You can do that as you sit in your seat right now. If you do that today, would you please, because it's a spiritual battle, this is a serious decision, would you please fill out your connection card and mark on there, today you trusted Jesus. I want to pray for you. There's people in our church that want to pray for you. I'd love to give you some information on how to grow in that relationship, but I can't if I don't know that you made that decision. So will you please mark on your connection card that you trusted Jesus today? And Father, I pray for those of us who've already crossed that line of faith, but practically speaking, we live like slaves. God, we repent we turn from whatever it is that's mastering our lives, another person, sex, guilt, fear, money, whatever it is, God, we turn from that. We want to turn to you. Will you guide us? We want to trust in you with all of our hearts and not lean on our own understanding. We even take ourselves off the throne, Father, and invite you to rule and reign in our hearts. Will you take our lives? Will you do that, please? And for each of us today, you received a worship program, and inside the worship program is a little slip of paper. It just asks the question, who are you? We're going to take a couple moments in the service right now, just in the spirit of prayer still, and I want you to write out, what's the answer to that question? Who are you before God? Who's your master? And it might be good for you to name that. It might be good for you to claim and say what it is that it's your master, and don't deny it. Like, if it's not God, just write it out so you can have the truth written right before your face. And for some of you, it might be that you've, you've rejected that, you, you've repented from whatever it was that's sitting on the throne. So what does it mean now that you're a son, that you're a daughter of the king? that you've been adopted, that according to John, you're his child, that according to Peter, you're part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that you have direct access to God, that according to what Jesus says here, you can cry out, Abba, by your spirit, that he is your father, and he's a perfect father, and you're a perfect child. According to Ephesians, you've got every spiritual blessing. What does that mean? Practically for you. And that's why I want to take a couple moments and just write out on your card. And maybe you even have questions for God. You write the questions out. He knows. We're just going to spend a couple moments in contemplation. You can write it, and I'll wrap us up in a, a prayer.